Thanks for taking the time to check out this episode of Desert Island Goals. Video links to all the goals we're going to discuss in this podcast are in the description below, as well as social media profiles for myself, the podcast itself, and our guest. Please take the time to follow us all right now. There is a good chance there will be some strong language at some point during this podcast, just letting you know that ahead of time. And please take the time right now to give us a five-star review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Cheers. Okay, welcome again to another episode of Desert Island Goals. My name is Callum Squires, and I am your host of this podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to check it out. If you have a second, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And hopefully you will enjoy with our very special guest today, Dr. Jacob Tingle of Trinity University. I feel like you have more degrees than I've had hot dinners in my life. Um, and we can go through all of that as we go. This is special. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you're a very busy human um, with everything that you've got going on. So thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, no, I'm, it's, this is, uh, I feel really quite frankly honored and, and having listened to almost all of the previous episodes, kind of wonder, uh, like if I'm even qualified to talk about, uh, uh, the beautiful game. Um, but I'll do my best to keep the listeners entertained along the way. I can assure you, you are more than qualified. And as we'll get into your journey as a soccer fan, which this is obviously going to tell the story of, I think it's, there's so much intrigue and so much interest in, kind of the point that we've got to and having this conversation today because I think it's fair to say seven years ago this conversation would have been a very different conversation if that much in depth at all very very different I think they would have all been either Trinity men or Trinity women soccer goals <laughs> yeah. and yet now uh, we sit in a very different world That's so right. yeah we always start by kind of saying to introduce you kind of where are you from and obviously I've given away that you're a college professor here at Trinity, so maybe a little bit about what you teach and then basically what your introduction to the sport of football was, yeah. and then we'll go on to uh, kind of your journey after that. Yeah, yeah. So I am uh, Jacob Tingle, Trinity graduate. I always like to make sure that people, um, I introduce myself that way. And um, I am the uh, program director for our sport management program here at Trinity. In a previous life, I worked in intercollegiate athletics that included a, a nine-year stint here at Trinity in the athletics department, which was um, where I got to, uh, I, I knew Paul well, uh, Coach McGinley, we'll talk about him later, I know, but I, got, I knew him well beforehand, but got to know him really well um, when your office is across the hall from somebody for nine years, uh, you, you find out more about them than, than you'd like to. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's what I do now. One of the things that I love about my job is uh, we get to teach a study abroad class every year. I know we'll, we'll probably touch on that a little bit later, but also, you know, I get to help students think about their own journeys in terms of the professional development, professional growth. Both of them are super big baseball and also super big soccer fans. Um, baseball players, baseball, uh, soccer players. And yeah, sorry, I guess we'll just call it soccer today if that's okay that's for your, for, <laughs> for the listeners around the globe. I apologize. What in terms of, you know, kind of soccer stuff, I grew up, I was born in the early seventies in Texas and to call 1970s and early, well, through the 80s even, call Texas a soccer desert would be doing a disservice, quite frankly, to desert. In, in particular, and I, I grew up in Austin and then a small town outside of Austin, Dripping Springs. We moved there in junior high. And I was thinking about it today. 
if there was if there was ever a time in my mind where I would have thought about wanting to play soccer, I don't know where I would have even found like someone else to kick a ball with, let alone a league. I'm sure there was a league or something in Austin, but they probably would have been expats or sons and daughters of, you know, <laughs> of of expats or whatever. It's just so interesting to me that, and again, I know we'll talk a lot about this later, but you know, that how much I schedule my days around soccer and how little of my youth would, would the word have even been used. Uh, high school didn't have a team, uh, you know, and, and now our high school, the, the place I went to high school is like Wednesday state championships in soccer. So it's a weird, yeah. yeah. I think your soccer fandom, as we're going to go into now, I've never seen a more clear experience of lifelong learning yeah. and lifelong kind of, I guess, adapting, but it's that, make, that makes it sound like changing from positive from negative to positive, which is not the case. But just the the growth of you as a soccer fan, from my eyes, having kind of seen what I believe to be the genesis of it all the way through till now, yeah. is a pretty incredible journey from, like you said, this soccer desert in 70s and 80s Texas. Yeah. Obviously, Trinity, where we're sat, we're recording in in Jacob's office here uh, on the campus of Trinity University in San Antonio, where I was a student of Jacob's. We should get that out there for for clarity's sake, uh, which is how this partnership came to be. And Trinity has very successful men's and women's soccer programs that and has done for going on you know thirty years at this point, and been very successful in in the realm of intercollegiate athletics in the US, which we'll touch on a little bit later on. My understanding is kind of how you first encountered soccer. Is that an accurate representation? One hundred percent. Yeah, and I think it, I think it's just again in terms of a little bit of background. You know, so I I played uh, basketball all the way since you know five years old. Uh, I, I dabbled a little bit in tennis. Fell a guy named literally a guy named George Lobb beat me in the eighth grade district finals, and I was like, I don't need to play tennis anymore if I'm losing to that guy. So. Anyway, so then I focused exclusively on basketball from from that. Like I just can remember the court, so I'm uh, scarred, George Lobb. Anyway, but uh, but yeah, so I get to Trinity, and um, it is August of 1991, and the residence hall, the dormitory I lived in, was truly in in the the dark end of where all the first years live. The people that lived on that side of the residence hall faced transfer students who could care at all about first years and the people literally just 20 feet away from us on the other side faced like the quad and all where all of the stuff happened. So we like had this little tribe of our own. Um, and two, two of those guys were from new Orleans twins played on the soccer team, you know, just because I had no other friends other, you know, other than my, my roommates and sweet mates. And then these, you know, all the rest of the guys on the, on this, on this hall, you know, we would go and, you know, support Hugh and Joe and watch, you know, watch Trinity soccer. And then I discovered that like women played soccer too. You know, I just was like, wow, this is a really fun game to watch. And, and, and I tell you that I say the thing about basketball on purpose because basketball for me is so similar to, to soccer. And I think that's where a lot of, when we talk about like the transition for me into becoming a huge soccer fan, I think that's where a lot of that comes from is I understand in a lot of ways, the movement there's, you know, obviously there's more players and, and the playing space is wider, but I understand a lot of the concepts of where and how people are trying to move because it is so similar 
the basketball. So that was easy. And it was also easy that Trinity men's soccer and Trinity women's soccer were really good, <laughs> you know. And so when you're going on a Friday night or Saturday, uh, you know, a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon to watch your friends play and your friends are really, really good, it makes it easier to go back. I probably would have gone anyway if they were terrible, but it made it a lot more fun to celebrate goals that were going in and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that was my first exposure. Again, I knew soccer existed. I'd seen you know World Cups and those kinds of things here and there. But it was like, wow, this is a fun game. And it started to open my mind to just the possibilities of what this sport could be. But for a long, long time, like that was it. And, uh, and, and then went to University of Maryland for graduate school. And now you're m- moving up. For those of you who aren't familiar with American college sports, you're moving up a couple of levels, full scholarship sport, and uh, and both of those teams competed against, you know, competed in maybe the toughest league or at the time one of the toughest leagues, the Atlantic Coast Conference. So you had North Carolina and Virginia and North Carolina State and some very, very good teams. So I got to see college soccer at even another level, which uh, which, again, just kept me connected to the game in uh in a really interesting way and it's kind of this like baseline not really like i haven't really sat down for the full meal yet but i i have the menu and i and i am understanding that that there's a lot of really good things that the sport could offer the comparison between basketball and soccer is a really interesting one the english men's national team had a lot of success at the 2018 world cup Mm. with corner kick routines and manager Gareth Southgate highlighted at the time that they had studied out-of-bounds mm. plays from basketball to in terms of screens and rotation of players, in terms of allowing people to get free for the moment that the corner kick was served into the box yeah. to get the first contact with the header. And so you're very accurate in making that point because it's, you know, at the top level, there are coaches who are, you know, really seeing that comparison. Yeah. And it is fascinating. Moving on, in, and as we as we get towards starting talking about the goals here, the biggest thing to say about you now is that, as far as I'm concerned, you're the biggest Queen's Park Rangers fan that I know, so much so that I would genuinely consider you a internationally famous <laughs> social media personality in Queen's Park Rangers circles. And I, I say that in jest to an extent, yeah. but there's also a very big element of truth on that. Yeah. And when we get to your third goal, we'll mm. go through a lot of that specifically. Yeah. But just by way of introduction, before we go to the, your first goal, Queen's Park Rangers, how and why? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, we teach a study abroad class um, that allows Trinity students to go as a cohort with Trinity faculty to London. And the class itself is a comparison of the American and British sport models. We look specifically at elements, kind of sociological and political and economic elements between the two countries. So intersections of race, gender, how sports are done in schools or not done in schools, international sports, uh, you know, the connection with politics, those kinds of things. So as you well know, when we were planning the course over a napkin, uh, the first syllabus was written on a napkin at uh, the, the great Bombay Bicycle Club with uh, with you and me and Coach McGinley and brainstorming some ideas. One of the things that we quickly landed on was that, you know, how can we get our students, this is not exactly the right way to think about it, but like, you know, backstage access to things. And, and you know, Paul has a lot of connections and, and many of them are in, in Sheffield or Preston or like other kinds of places. But 
one of his strongest connections and still remains this, uh, you know, is a good friend of his, Chris Ramsey, who at the time when we were planning the course was, was, was he at that point in time? Anyway, I think he was still, I think he was Academy director at that point in time anyway, but shortly before we taught the first class, he was actually the man, the first team manager. Yeah. Between between buying the tickets uh, and, uh, and and us getting over there, he was he was released of his uh, obligations to the first team. He maintains, a, you know, uh, he does an unbelievable job at the academy now uh, and uh, and and training and development. But we were able to have a really intimate conversation with Chris on New Year's Eve in Camden town at a restaurant. And, uh, and somehow we were able to to get the waiters to let us stay for an hour and a half on new year's Eve. And I guess we just kept saying like, just keep bringing bottles of wine or pizza or whatever it was. And I don't think we (laughs) ate that much food, but I think we bought a lot. And so here, you know, that was, that was the introduction. And then the next day we go and we get a little stadium tour and we get to you know, it's New Year's Eve, excuse me, New Year's Day. The game is under the lights uh, and it is against Hull. And uh, and the place was packed. Hull brought everybody. And, I, you know, I like to say it this way. I did not go to London looking for a soccer club and QPR found me. One thing that is important, I think, to, to know just in terms of that is I don't, like, I would never, people ask, like, well, how would you not end up being an Arsenal fan or, you know, whatever? Like, I'm not, Sports fandom for me is something that is personal and and somehow family related. So, you know, that's why I don't have an NFL team truly because the Houston Oilers left Houston and I'm not going to, I was not going to follow them to Tennessee and the Texans are a fake team as far as I'm concerned. And so like, I just, I like the NFL. I just don't have a team as bad as the Rockets have been for a long time. I just, I'm always, well, for always ever be first a Rockets fan, but also now with the, you know, I've lived in San Antonio for 26 years of my life. So I'm, I'm a, you know, a died in the world Spurs fan too. So that was for me, I, I wasn't just going to go and say like, Oh, let me go. We toured, you know, we toured Emirates like, Oh, let me throw on an arsenal kit. And like, all of a sudden like go right. But that's just not who I am. So when we walked into Loftus road, I was just, like I, I immediately thunderbolt. This is a place that I care deeply about. It probably didn't hurt that Paul and I somehow talked our way into into the defectors weld. So for about an hour and a half before kickoff, we were enjoying. Well, I wasn't talking <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't know where the hell I was, and I didn't know like the guy that was the bouncer at the defectors weld basically like scared the pants off of me. And so I was like, I'm just going to go stand in the corner. <laughs> and Paul brought me pints and I just am listening. And it was just like cultural anthropology at its, at its finest. Like, what are they talking about? How are they talking? If they hear my American accent, am I going to get like, I don't know. Right. It was probably the longest time, the longest span of time in my life where I haven't talked. I mean, it was like, honestly, and I was even like whispered to Paul, I was like, just don't even talk to me because then I'm going to have to respond to you. So it probably didn't hurt, though, that I saw like and then but they were not like, it's just like this was a community and a family. And then you walk in and like, oh, my gosh. Right. So that's how I became a Queens Park Rangers fan. Immediately, immediately got back 
um, started following them on Twitter, like bought books, like a couple of history books. Your actually, your parents did an awesome job uh, of giving me a a really cool uh, Queens Park Queen Park Queens Park Rangers anthology thing of like you know kind of the hundred years of history or whatever. But so that was it. And then I figured out that there were things called illegal streams, and I, you know so. At that point in time, the uh, the football league didn't allow clubs to do individual streams, um, which you know now, you, you know I watch them all legally. But there was a couple, you know, so I got to see Ryan Manning's first goal until like the German feed went out. Um, so I, I only got to watch the first half of that. But Twitter became my lifeline to watching watching slash supporting QPR during games. So literally, I would wake up at eight. I would read. Clive, uh, I would read Loft for Words. I would read whatever I could pre-match, discovered a couple of podcasts. I would listen to those. And so that was like my Saturday morning routine. And then I would literally get a cup of coffee and be on Twitter for two hours. And like, why are they not refreshing their Twitter feed? And QPR were not good. And those like you know, for a while, but, and it was just like, that was it. That was the only way I could quote unquote watch a game was however many times QPR tweeted. And so because of that, then I interacted, I began interacting a lot. Um, and if I saw somebody that was posting about the game or in between games, I would just tag them in tweets and like, tell me more about this. Or I would read threads and start to figure out that that guy's not a good guy and we don't like that guy. <laughs> so yeah, so that's, and, and, and now it is because I'm an international member uh, you know, but the the club membership because they're they stream every game that Sky doesn't pick up, and and ESPN Plus picks up plays the Sky games. I literally watch forty four, forty three, forty four of the forty six regular season you know matches. So I you know I feel deeply connected in that way. Um, and the proliferation of pods like the our generation guys or so the younger group. You know, the QPR pod, um, which is kind of, uh, you know, a more established fan base. I don't want to say older, <laughs> older fan base. And then um, and then the official club pods and all those kinds of things. And there's so much writing. So, you know, it's just so easy to feel like you're a part of a community. And then again, with Twitter, like I'm literally part of a community. And then we've got a little um, I think there's maybe one other American, but there's a um, there's a a Twitter, it's the equivalent of like a group me, a Twitter direct message group that is mostly, most ex, mostly expats who live in the States. And so during game days or, you know, transfer deadline day yesterday, you know, we're like, what's, you know, we're just you know chatting with each other. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really, it's a cool group of people. Um, and it is truly a family club. I, and I, I will say, I would be remiss to fail to mention how important I think the work of QPR's community trust is and Andy Evans and Paul Mitchell and those guys. And as Katsuo Nishikawa, Dr. Nishikawa, who uh, runs our center for international engagement, as he said on, on Tuesday, he said, it's just an easy club to like because they do a lot of really good work in the community intentionally win games or lose games, you know, whatever, but they're just a really good club to, it's an easy club to support because of who they are. The, the world and the football league and the Premier League, especially, yeah. could do with a lot more clubs that were focused on the good rather than the bottom line. And we'll get into QPR as a good club as, as we go on through this. Spoiler alert, we're going to be talking QPR a couple more times on this list. Yeah. Just before we dive into the goals, obviously, I always ask people on this podcast, how difficult was this process for you? And obviously, 
as we'll get to in your honourable mentions, I unfortunately <laughs> had to tell Jacob that he wasn't allowed one of the options that he'd originally chosen. Yeah. Um, and we will touch on that right at the end. Um, but in, in putting this list together, was this something that you enjoyed? Did it stress you out? How was the process? Yeah, you? yeah, no, it was, it, it was, a, it was really, really hard, but it was so fun. Um, and, 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 you know, as we'll talk about one of the goals, I, I still have never seen a video of, um, I've only listened to it on the radio and I've read, again, read the New York times report of that goal. But so it was really fun to go back and watch 20 different videos and like, is this the, is this one worthy of keeping? And, you know, we'll get to them. I mean, there's, there's some, you know, I know you asked one of your previous guests, I think maybe Dalen, but like you know, this idea about re recency bias and there's a couple of like 2022 goals. And so is, is that because of where we are in, in the space of time, but um, they make sense for the reasons that I picked the goals that I did, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are obviously, as you said, a couple of 2022 goals on here and, I think recency bias is natural and will inevitably in any kind of list like this format would always play some part of a role. Yeah. But to be fair, there's still a, a big spread here yeah. in terms of yeah. ages and styles of goals and what each of them means. And a lot of them are very important for very different reasons. Right. Yeah, let's dive into it. To give him an option. Those fans, though, seeing their team slowly but surely get further up the pitch and to believe a little bit. Well, Hoylet's got the better of Buxton. Puts it into an area. Keo Zamora! Unbelievable! From the very brink of elimination, Bobby Zamora has sorely scored another playoff winner. Well, can you believe it? Okay, goal number one. And this is the one that was the last added to the list because I unfortunately told Jacob the one he wanted he couldn't have uh, as it did not fit into a category that we'll discuss later on. This is a very famous goal for the club that you support and a very famous goal in, I would argue, Football League playoff history based on the game it was in and what the eventuality of scoring this goal meant for QPR. So yes, this is a Queen's Park Rangers goal. And this is the championship playoff final of 2014 at Wembley between Queen's Park Rangers and Derby County. A back and forth game for an hour, maybe. But the key point in this game was on the hour mark mm -hmm. where Gary O'Neill receives a red card. And the biggest surprise to me in researching this was that it was Gary O'Neill who got sent off and not Joey Barton, mm -hmm. which is a miracle in itself. <laughs> Gary O'Neill gets a red card and QPR, despite knowing that winning this game will take them back to the Premier League, are now clinging on, for want of a better phrase, for the best part of half an hour, yeah. trying desperately to stave off Derby, which they yeah. successfully do. Yeah. And in added time, the oft-maligned Bobby Zamora <laughs> pops up and scores an incredible goal and one that will go down in history. Mm -hmm. I often felt that Bobby Zamora was somewhat harshly targeted, the, the famous song being, <laughs> if you're sat in Rosette and the ball hits your head, that's Zamora, which is wonderfully creative, it has to be said, but I do think a little bit harsh on Bobby at times. The way he reacts to the ball popping loose in the box and just without thinking, 
bang top corner pandemonium yeah i remember watching this and i got goosebumps in terms of yeah. knowing what it means for the qpr fans yeah. and obviously this as we said was quote unquote before mm-hmm. your rebirth as a queen's park rangers supporter yeah. but explain to me why this goal made your list so there's a throw in uh about midway into darby's half in the in the color commentary that, or the play-by-play goes thusly. The QPR fans are starting to believe a little bit. Well, Hoylet's got the better of Buxton there. Puts it into an area. Kiyo Zamora! Unbelievable. From the very brink of elimination, Bobby Zamora has surely scored another playoff winner. Just, like that's the literal transcript, right? Just saying that out loud, reading it, I get chills. I don't know how many times I've actually watched the highlight of the video, uh, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, whatever. It's like st- a stupid amount. I've only watched the, the the full replay of the game one time, and it was like I don't even know why they were still on the like. How did Darby not? I mean, this like honestly, McLaren like they should all just uh, be. In, I don't know. I don't know how it wasn't already two nil or three nil. Like. Again, it's this idea. We'll talk about some of this and some of the other goals, but like the the one of the things that I love about soccer is really you always still have a chance, you know, unless it's you know three maybe, but even then, but you just you still always have a chance if you can somehow stave off, right? You know, somebody is open and they shoot it wide. It hits the bar. Somebody clears it off the line. The keeper makes an amazing save and, you know, whatever. There's all of these things that you can do in soccer that I just don't think are really literally possible in any other sport. Like it's, it's, it, it's hard for me to think about how you could prevent somebody from scoring in the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball or hockey in that way. I think of soccer as the least fair elite mm. sport at times. And in terms of statistics, it it's – the statistics agree in that quote unquote the better team on paper wins about 80 percent of right. the time in in basketball right about 85 percent of the time in the nfl right and only about 60 percent of the time in soccer yeah and that's what i you know i don't know whether you know quote unquote darby were the better team on paper that day but i know certainly as you mentioned yes. after you know after after the send-off if not even before but certainly after the send-off it was like how is this still even possible and then for how Hoylet kept the ball to get around Buxton like there's something that is so fascinating to me about the the combination of upper body and lower body strength while also being able to maintain balance and kicking a you know a round thing that has no reason to bounce the way you want it to bounce and then Keogh like oh guy man sorry I mean like just God, it just sucks. <laughs> just sucks. Like, and I was watching it back a bunch today, and I'm like, at one point, I was thinking about playing like the uh, like the cartoon music, like the Benny Hill music, yeah. and I was like, because that's what he looked like. He just looked like a clown. And like, how are you? You're the captain of the team. You're whatever. Yeah. And Zamora, both the right place in the right time, but that was not an easy finish. No. I mean, you could imagine that going in a lot of different ways. 
and and how it curled in you're just like oh man and obviously he doesn't think about this before he strikes it but one swing of that left foot is worth a hundred million they always say that's yeah well and, I, and you're not going to sit there while you're preparing for this finish and go well, i better get this right because there's a hundred million on the line right. but you think about how instinctive it is it's a pure reaction yeah. and that's the result of years on years on years of training and playing and being in the right position yeah. to then be able to just do it right instantly yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I was reading a Guardian article today uh, from the day after, but that Bobby Zamora's goal, like, we, like he wasn't even going to get to enjoy the the you know the you know the success of because uh, in his career he wasn't a Premier League player you know like you know at, at you know for extended periods and so like that goal and he was older and so like that goal like cost him yeah. <laughs> like you know. Like, I'm not, I'm out of contract and, and congratulations. Yeah. And you get, you guys get all this money and I'm not even going to get to necessarily. You're a hero, yeah. Well, that's, it. that's it. Right. Yeah. And, and having, you know, having, and I'm going to mention this later too, but having seen a playoff final at Wembley now to imagine being there supporting a team I cared about and not just winning, but winning in that way. I just cannot even begin to imagine what it must have felt like to be in that crowd at that moment. And uh, again, you know, just the, no matter how low you have the volume on the TV or the computer, it just sounds like it's blowing out your speakers when that ball goes in just, and this is like, like it's bedlam here you know, at, at, at Wembley, like just, it is it's sheer pandemonium and they don't even know where to, he goes and celebrates, but like he, like they doesn't even know what he's doing. Like he's just like running in circles. Uh, and then to hang on and, and win that game. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's phenomenal. And, um, and so it is that, like, that's one of those things for me, like, because I think of what happened, especially from a financial standpoint, you know, the, the, the next year and a couple of years later, but, I think some people look back on that with maybe, you know, did we blow, did we blow all of that money and waste a chance and, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm just one of those guys that sometimes you just, it's just, I don't care what happens next, just live in the moment. And I cannot imagine very many times in people's lives, the people that were at when those 44,000 QPR fans or whatever, I can't imagine that they've had better, many better experiences in their, you know, in their life. I can't think of any better way to win. I mean, really any game, but specifically, I think it's so much more stressful. And I've never gone through this as a fan myself, but in my head, winning a playoff final is far superior to winning the championship outright in terms of the emotion and the feeling of that moment. It I'm sure, sure obviously, like same, same end goal. Yeah. And admittedly, my friend Sean, who was on episode seven or eight, I can't remember, who's a Watford fan, he's been through it. And, you know, he talks about how he hates the playoffs because the stress and the risk and the fear and finishing first or second is so much nicer and so much more relaxing. And I agree that it would be. But it's just the same way as in my head, I can't think of many better ways to win a game than winning a penalty shootout admittedly it's also the worst way to lose it and right. so it's it's that double-edged sword isn't it yeah. if you're chasing the moment of all moments and the feeling of all feelings 
as I can absolutely understand why, as a QPR fan who was not there at this point, this would 100% have to be on your list. It didn't go to extra time. It didn't go like all like if if it's nil nil and and you go they lose the game. I mean, there's just no way they can maintain. And so like everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be perfect um, for for that moment to be realized. And gosh, <laughs> like I, I yeah, I just I don't even know like what's a a walk off grand slam. Yeah. Uh, a three pointer at the one second in game seven of the NBA finals. Uh, you know, I, I, what, what is an equivalent? And those are the only comparisons. Maybe, right? Yeah. And something World Cuppy related, I guess. But like, there is, and this is what we try to talk to our students about there's literally no sporting event there on the planet where more money is on the line. For one game, right? NBA Finals, you get a you get a fat paycheck, right? Bonus, like congratulations. You know, World Cup, even, right? It's like you know, congratulations. You get you know, you get a bonus, you get a paycheck. The country gets some, you know, the the soccer federation, whatever association gets some money. But to have you know the difference between a hundred million dollar or zero the next year into your into your team's budget, like in in and down a man in the 90th minute stupid like whatever like check that has to be one right 90 seconds remaining tainer to fabian garcia again serves this one inside the area slips in put in on the header shannon gomez he's done it and has delivered safc perhaps a final point here the end okay goal number two and this is going to be a really interesting one an actual piece of history for this podcast as this is the first time a goal has been selected from the usl which for those of you who don't know is another soccer league in america technically the league below mls major league soccer though as i'm sure most people would be aware the American soccer system does not have promotion and relegation in and out of MLS. And that's a whole other discussion that quite frankly, we don't have time for on this podcast, unfortunately, but this is San Antonio FC. So quote unquote, our hometown club in San Antonio, uh, which was born out of the former San Antonio Scorpions who played in the NASL when I first got here in 2013. So it is a club that is relatively young, but in a short space of time, I feel has developed a pretty big cult following in San Antonio itself and had some success on, on the field in the USL itself. This game in particular is against the second team for the Los Angeles Galaxy, who are, I think I'm right in saying, the most successful club in Major League Soccer history, or at least one of them. It's certainly yeah. when whenever yeah, yeah, whenever one of the big names came to MLS, it always seemed to be for the Galaxy. And we're talking David Beckham, we're talking yeah. Robbie Keane, Slatan yeah. Ibrahimovic. Obviously, there were others that went elsewhere. But this is LA Galaxy 2 in San Antonio to play SAFC. And a little repeat pattern in these first two goals here is that we find ourselves with a very late goal, this time an equalizer. But the context of it is that San Antonio FC are down to 10 men again. 
as Santiago Patino had been shown a red card just after the hour mark, 62 minutes. So very similar situations to uh, the QPR situation in goal one. But this time, LA Galaxy 2 had taken a late lead. Josh Drack, midfielder, had scored with about three minutes left, almost a dagger to San Antonio's hopes of getting anything from this game. But in the 95th minute, up pops Shannon Gomez. It is questionably defended, it must be said, but that's a whole other conversation. And Shannon Gomez ghosts in towards the back post, header in the net, Mm. and San Antonio celebrate a very late equaliser. Obviously, we'll get to this goal specifically, but just by way of context, what does San Antonio FC mean to you? Because I know that's been a big part of your children's kind of soccer fandom. And as a local San Antonio resident, having a club here in town has to be important to you. Yeah. So um, without going super deep into the history of the San Antonio Scorpions, when the Scorpions opened, it became a really great place for our sport management students at Trinity one more outlet for them to do some volunteerism, to do some job shadowing, to do some work. And so we immediately, almost immediately formed a really good relationship with their operations and with their ticket people. And so that was, you know, in in some ways that was that first connection. I wanted to make sure that our students had access to experiential learning opportunities. Then I was like, well, I'm, if I'm at the game, I might as well cheer. Right? And, and like, again, I'm a San Antonio guy. And, and, you know, at that point had, had been in San, back in San Antonio for 13 or 14 years. And so it was just an easy team to, to like, it was founded as a nonprofit, the profits, the proceeds w- went to, to, you know, create a, 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 you know, a theme park for, for uh, kids that were, you know, um, uh, like, I guess physically challenged. Uh, and so just like all kinds of reasons again, to like the, sure. like the club, San Antonio Spurs bought the club under the premise that the MLS, uh, you know, that they would have a good shot at, at a franchise. We don't have to get into reasons. I don't like the MLS, but let's just yeah. say like, I'm not a huge, like me and Davis would probably like not yeah. like a lot about it, uh, about <laughs> soccer together. Like, so um, he's a Fulham guy and he likes the U S men's national team. I, I don't like, I really, and he likes the MLS. Like I actually now I'm, wondering like maybe he and i need to get into a duke em up match or something so anyway we're season ticket holders uh we've been season ticket holders for three plus years maybe four years um, we sit six rows behind the home bench so we are all in for safc this was a game that there was no reason for them to lose right 20 something points ahead of la galaxy 2 in the table and I, I don't know if it's one of those like was where was the team mentally but i can tell you that the fans were like this is going to be a two or three goal victory, whatever. Um, you, you mentioned about Patino, headbutt. I don't like he gets when he gets red cards. They are for the wackiest. Like slap, he slapped a guy once. Uh, you know, like anyway. I, even before that, it was they played kind of played a marginally game, marginal game, similar, right? And then uh, and then you could just feel that the galaxy were going to. It was just going to happen. You're hoping again. Let's just go nil nil fine then that goal went in 86 87th minute whatever you think okay this is over everybody you know in in san antonio fashion no one leaves early because i think there's a fireworks that night and there's still like dollar beer left to be consumed or something so no one was leaving but when the fourth official held up six minutes like wait a second 
And it was interesting. So the Crocketeers, the support group down in the bunker, like their drums started beating a little bit louder. People, you could hear just like, almost like feel this palpable energy. Like, wait, six minutes, we might actually be able to do something. And then the ball went out at the 95th minute. Mitchell Tainer throws the ball in with as much space as Fabian Garcia had, like problem number one from the defense, right? From midfield, 10 yards from from the, the left side, from the bench side, he just sends in a ball that is eerily similar to the ball that is goal number, like the send in for ball number three. And so that is one of the things that I love. I love like when a big diag leads to something cool happening. It doesn't necessarily have to immediately lead to the goal like it did here. Doyle, I can't remember what his first name is. It was one of the center backs. He used to play for SAFC. And I'm like, after watching it again, I'm like, is he on the, is he on the take? Like what? Like, come on. Like, I think what happened, I think the goalie was like, surely one of my two center backs is going to stop this. And I think the, the angle at which it was coming in, both of them thought, oh, surely the goalie is going to come punch this. And neither of those things happened. It literally drops in between those three people. Shannon Gomez, the smallest guy on the pitch, defender, the defending mid. Like, there's no reason he scores goals. Pops it in. Again, utter pandemonium. The the crowd was not probably, I don't know, two-thirds or three-quarters full. Not the biggest, you know, it wasn't a sellout. Like, it, it, it has been a lot. But I've very rarely heard Toyota feel that loud. And it's also the only time where beer might have been thrown out of my cup. And and I will tell you, mainly because I'm cheap and I don't like to waste things, but also it was like I had the mistake of having it in my hand, so I didn't even realize. I was just like, <laughs> you know. Um, so it was, and, and my son was like, you got beer on my shoe, my 11-year-old. I was like, you got beer on my shoe. I don't really like it. I was like, we'll go get some ice cream later and I'll clean your shoes. Like, are you going to be fine with that? But it was one of those like, mid-season game that if you lose you know whatever it's nice to get the equalizer it might end up being the difference between the one and the number and the two seed going into the playoffs this year so it could end up having some kind of ramification but to me it's just like the collective belief that the team had that all the fans had that we can still do this was i think it's actually reminds me a lot just of the city of san antonio right you know, for those who, who aren't, you know, don't know anything about the city, you know, we're, you know, people think of Houston or Dallas or Austin even first and San Antonio's like, just like whatever. And it's just a city that just kicks everyone else's ass in so many ways. And we just don't care about like what Austin thinks of itself or what Dallas thinks of itself or what Houston thinks of itself. And, and, if you if there's one second left, we can win, like or or in this case tie, right? Whatever. <laughs> but, but you know, there's always a chance, and I just feel like there's something about that goal that to me is the metaphor of San Antonio. It's a great city, and it's vastly underrated in Texas for sure. Yeah. And I think that what San Antonio FC have done in creating another team for the community support on top of the Spurs is really impressive, yeah. and. You talk about your 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 kids being unhappy that there was beer spilled on them. 
were they joining in the celebrations just as much as anyone? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think he sh- sh- like threw coke all over the people. Like there was everybody was like left that place like soaked with us some kind of awful liquidy like whatever. Yeah. No, they were. It was absolutely. Uh, and and you know again, it, not for nothing. It, you the, the the field is just a beautiful soccer field, but being six rows behind the home bench, every goal that scored is that much more special for us because we're in the living room of the team. And so when they come over and they celebrate with each other and, and you can see how much it means to coach Marcy and to you know, the manager, Alan, it's just like, that's kind of a special, like, again, I almost feel like we shouldn't even be this close. Like we shouldn't be allowed to know what's you know? And so that makes it even kind of more special, but yeah, the boys were just like, this is ridiculously awesome. And, you know, again, I think, not for nothing, but it's a good lesson for a ninth, ninth grader, a 14-year-old, an 11th year, 11-year-old. Like, hey, roll up your sleeves and, and keep going. And if you lose, you know, whatever. But don't stop. Eze. Oh, it's a great ball into Wells! Okay, goal number three. And this one is probably the one I've been most excited to talk about because the day surrounding this goal is one of the strangest things I've been involved in. Wonderful from start to finish. But based on your origin story that we told at the start of this podcast, from that origin to this day and this goal, nonsense from start to finish, if we're completely honest. It's difficult to know where to start. What I should say is it was January 1st, 2020 so this is pre-pandemic and as part of this day this is in the midst of the third trinity sport in london class and on this day queen's park rangers are scheduled to play cardiff city in the championship it's a 3 p.m kickoff on new year's day but jacob and i arrived significantly earlier than that because pre-game, we got pretty much a behind-the-scenes tour of Loftus Road because the man opposite me was being interviewed by Queen's Park Rangers about being a Queen's Park Rangers fan. So four-year anniversary as a QPR fan, and you've gone from, I don't know anything about this club, to this club now wants to interview me about following this club abroad. That's got to be an insane experience for anyone. How was that for you, and how did that come about? Completely wild. The start of the second year, so when like when we came back, they uh, you know I saw a note that you could that they have like international support clubs, and so I read the the memo of understanding and like what do you do that? And so I you know gathered ten fifteen folks, you being you know one of them, said you guys want to. Like, do we want to apply to be an international support club? So 2016, Vamos QPR is born. And uh, and so now we, you know, we got a permission to use their badge. <laughs> we are, you know, officially recognized international support club. And so we're just, you know, I, you know, we create a Vamos QPR Twitter account and uh, and start trying to engage in more intentional QPR only ways uh, with 
QPR fans, other international support support clubs with the club itself. Um, we start hosting watch parties on campus. Uh, as, you know, as as you know, we've got got a big one tomorrow that we're excited about. I think that was part of it, right? Is this why doesn't why does this international support club in San Antonio exist? And I think that was I think when they reached out to do the interviews, I, I think they just wanted to know a little bit more, you know, about that. And then and then specifically, you know, some you know some of my experiences. Yeah, so we get there, and, and I really, you know, Calum, I, I thought they were just going to have like a little tape recorder out, <laughs> ask a couple of questions, and then it was going to be a written, you know, thing in the game program the next day or something. First off, like there's a full spread about Vamos QPR in that day's match day program, which like that's stupid. And like what? And then they have like a video camera. Like, do you need any pancake? Make I like no, I'm fine. Whatever. So Dom, you know, Dom Tromboli is running the camera, and you know, Andy Watkins is doing the interview. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable. And then the five minute, four minute, whatever it was, the the package they put together was absolutely tremendous. And I don't know how to use Twitter the way they did, but they went and found images from all of our watch parties things from from some of the stuff that we had done while we were in England you know uh, Jude the cat was like giving us high fives during games and somehow they got that on on film so it was just a really unbelievably special pregame experience and then and then the game happens right and then so, the <laughs> so the game itself I think calling it a massacre would be polite yeah we're gonna talk about the the first of three for Naki Wells, who scores this goal, Bright Asayi Samuel scores twice, and now Crystal Palace star, then QPR starlet Eberichi Eze scores as well in a 6-1 demolition of Cardiff City by QPR. When you woke up on January 1st of 2020, could you have dreamt that you would go to the stadium, have a profile done about you by their media department, and then see a 6-1 QPR home win. And above all else, we should point out that based on where you live, you get to go to two to four maybe QPR matches every two years. That's it. Yeah. So being at one is special inherently, but there's also the inherent risk that you might go and not see a win. That's life, that's sport, that's the risk you take. Right. Yeah. So to go there and see a 6-1 win in the manner that, it went about from minute one to minute 89 before the consolation was scored. Yeah. A complete destruction. Yeah. Talk me through your memories of this, of the goal first and, and the yeah. game generally. So I do think it is worth mentioning that three days later, QPR beat Swansea in a third round FA cup five, one. So, so this was this Naki's goal at, in the nine minute mark was the first shot fired across the bow of QPR's attempt to take over Wales. I think <laughs> would be the way to say it. January, 2020 is a time where Welsh uh, history books rip out that page. Cause they're just like, we don't want to think about London. Uh, certainly not. We don't want to think about West London. And that was three day that five day period, but, but, but it is. I mean, and so, you know, listen, I mean, part of it for me, it was really hard. The third goal um, that uh, that it's Bright's first goal, the third goal of the game, quite frankly, might be my favorite goal ever scored by anyone of all time. <laughs> but it's not on the list. And 
for some of the reasons for some of the reasons that that we'll talk about. But in the ninth minute, I don't know if the videos will be you know accessible to folks. The but fourth, no, the, one will. the I, fifth one we might struggle with. Yeah. We well, I encourage people to look at the ball that Fabian Garcia sent in for the goal for the SAFC goal and this ball that Eze sends in. And I didn't do this on purpose at the time, but I was like, those could not have been more similar everything from start to finish. Unbelievably huge diag left to right, back post, a great, you know, a great like ghost run or whatever. No one sees the guy coming in a header. It's just clearly, I think that's my favorite kind of goal. <laughs> also, this was Eze's last season with with the club, and he ended up getting another. So he had two assists and a goal in that game. And I think I really do think that that one pass was probably worth about two million pound. So I think Palace would have only given eighteen million for the transfer fee, but they saw that pass like okay, like that's that's a two million dollar pass. That's how like just go watch it. And like somebody needs to dispute me on that. But we're there, Sporting England 3, so I've got 18 students. The the pre-match interview is dusted. We're getting settled. Uh, we're in X block, and if anybody's been to the Loftus Road, you know, if you've, if, if you, if you're a QPR fan, you know, you're, you're right next to the, uh, to the, to the away support. And, you know, uh, as well they should be, the, the Cardiff fans were very vocal. <laughs> and the folks that, uh, I don't know if this, they intentionally pe- put people in X block who are likely to use four letter words. Um, <laughs> but the, the language that goes back and forth was, uh, in particular for some of our students was quite frankly shocking, especially when they turned around and saw that it was a group of 10 year old boys and their grandparents <laughs> a little bit different. Like we don't, you know, the Spurs, well, you might get kicked out of a game at a, at a, even at a Steelers game. I believe like the, the Raiders fans would have blushed like, Whoa, like we don't, Whoa, we don't like the giants. We don't like the, the 49ers. Like, yeah, we're not going to talk to them that way anyway. So you just have that whole amazing environment. And having been at games before, it's so fun to be with somebody in any sport. If you're going to a place that you care a lot about in a stadium like this stadium that has so much culture and history that, you know, my life was literally changed in that stadium to be able to go there with 18 people and it's their first time. It just like, you, you, again, you just walk in and they're like, where am I? I was just literally walking through a housing neighborhood. And now I'm walking into a stadium and that, you know, for a lot of your listeners, that won't mean anything. But for U.S., you know, it, you know, especially folks that, you know, a lot of our you know, students grew up in Texas, like, you know, there's a parking lot that holds 70,000 cars. Like, let it, like, how is there a house right next to this place? So that made it, you know, made it super special. But that ball that as they sent in could not have been more brilliant. And again, in watching it from alternate angles, Naki still had something to do. I mean, it was a header that if he had missed, everyone would have said, fire him, like get rid of him. You got to be able to finish it. But it was actually, he, he, he was a really good header. And again, he went on to score a hat trick that day. What? I don't know. A month later, COVID, right? So the world stops. Somewhere in between that and, uh, you know, I think the the next time that Naki was at uh, in that. So January 1st, the next time he is at Loftus Road, he's wearing a Bristol shirt. So like this, I mean, this was kind of Naki's last 
you know, he played a couple of other matches, but they were on the road. It was his last, like, loftus road performance. Everyone was wowed by Eze before all the games moved behind closed doors. And so we, you know, and six to one. And God, Lumley, just, oh, you got to be kidding me. I, like, that Vokes goal, it wasn't 89. So they, it was a, there was one minute of stoppage time, and the goal was in the 91st minute. Like five seconds later, like you can't even like, oh my God. And Lumley got both hands on it. I'm like, I don't, how did you, I remember talking to you at like, cause we were next to each other in the stadium. I'm like, that's it. I'm not even interested in this game anymore. Like, are you kidding me? Six, one, like, that's it. I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, you just ruined 90 minutes of pure bliss, Joe. Anyway, but I, I, I've since recovered from that, and yes, and it was still ninety minutes of pure bliss. <laughs> like it was unbelievable. But gotcha. Like, are you kidding me, man? Ilya's chair got one of the assists, and and so to see now, you know, a couple of years later, or a couple of seasons later, how he's progressing, um, and and so it was just there's so much that was so amazing about that night, and then afterwards getting to experience like post British soccer match life with three or four students and a couple of other faculty. I mean, that was fascinating. The, the conversation that we don't have time to get into the, that conversation <laughs> uh, uh, and in the, in the pubs after was, was great too. So yeah, all, all around, I just, that entire, I mean, quite frankly, I could have just picked all six of those goals, but, but that Naki's goal at the ninth minute, it, it, it just, I think it just put Cardiff back on their heels because there was no reason. I think actually Cardiff ended up getting promoted that year from from remembering right. Maybe I might be wrong. Maybe they had just come down and stayed down. But I, they had a lot of really talented players, and there was no reason for them to lose six one. Bouncing around dangerously in there. Can England poke it in? Yes, they can. Kelly. England lead in extra time. My goodness me. Astonishing scenes here. That time Germany didn't defend it. And Chloe Kelly, who only just came back from injury in the nick of time, might have won the European Championship for England. Goal number four. And this is the first time this has been selected, but I don't think it will be the last because it's a very famous goal already, and it only happened a shade over a month ago. We are at Wembley again, but this time it is for the Women's European Championship Final of 2022 between England and, quote-unquote, the old enemy, Germany, ending more than half a century of hurt as, finally, an English national team wins a major tournament. An unbelievable performance from yeah. Serena Wiegmann's team, capped off by this winning goal from Chloe Kelly, who I'm sure most people know, and I know you know, has a big connection to Queen's Park Rangers, which I'm sure plays at least some part of the role of this goal, meaning quite as much to you as it does. It was a tense final, as so many big games usually are. England had, to an extent rolled through most of the games in this tournament with the exception of the Spain game, which they won in the round of 16 or quarterfinals in overtime, the quarterfinal. But England had been dominant in their semifinal against Sweden. And the first half was pretty tight and pretty tense, not really many chances. But Germany were probably the better team 
for most of the game. Yeah. That said, yeah. Ella Toon put England 1-0 up with an incredible goal about 50 minutes into the second half, yeah. and England were dreaming of winning the tournament in 90 minutes, but Lina Magul said not so fast. Germany equalised, and we headed to extra time, where me watching this game, I was gutted when I went to extra time. Mm. I thought, I, I don't see us finding a way to win it here. It didn't feel like we had the legs left, despite having brought on some enthusiastic and youthful and energetic subs like Chloe Kelly. Yeah. But the corner swung in, scramble in the box, chaos in the box. Who reacts fastest? Chloe Kelly toes it past the keeper. Cue absolute insanity. What a celebration. What a goal. Yeah. Jacob, tell me through your feelings with this one. Ugly, scrappy. Uh, you know, I think it's Julie Foudy, who who's the who's the ESPN broadcaster. You know, she said she's uh, uh, you know just fighting for a third bite at the apple. And so I don't know. I guess if you were a soccer purist, Ella Toon's goal, like yeah. you know, like, <laughs> I mean, everything about that, the ball from Walsh, how she stayed on side, you know, and and then to go to chip it over, like oh my god, like that was awesome, but. When Germany comes back and equalize, like it doesn't matter, right? You go like, yeah, thank you, but and yeah, I was, you know, I'm like you, and and have less, I guess, kind of personally, deeply personally invested, you know, in in terms of in terms of the outcome. But you could just see like wobbly, wobbly in that first extra period. I, I either you like England were just crushed, and somehow I don't know what happened, but somehow if the Gatorade, what happened in between the extra periods, because literally almost the whole second extra period was was the opposite you know uh or 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 maybe after a couple of minutes two uh, 20 30 seconds before chloe and i think it's fitting that she wins the corner you know you just feel like that last kind of that five to ten minutes in my tweet was and i went and found like england seemed to be building for something special here was the tweet that i sent and not knowing of course right and then she went and then she wins the corner and you just think, hold on a second. And, you know, the crowd are up, but Chloe, like, air horn, like, just get up, right? And so then 88,000 uh, just, you know, like, erupt. And, and again, a really nice, you know, the, the ball in gave every, like, England the perfect chance, right? They get first head to it, you, you know, and no, no fault of Germany like that. I don't know how you would have cleared it, quite frankly. Ping pong, and and she just does not give up. And and there was just like again an ugly kind of goal, but it's just that I am not giving up. I'm gonna just do. I'm gonna stick my leg here. Okay, the ball's coming back at me. I'm gonna stick it there. Okay, it's coming back at me. I'm just gonna keep like putting it, and eventually we saw what happened. And I and I love. Guess how soccer players have now been like trained that she didn't immediately start celebrating like she looked over to the flag and with the ar with the flag down then she like rips her shirt off and again like everything goes you know batshit crazy at that point but it was just so cool and then you know a couple things for me um you know some some very dear friends uh from england who as you described long have been waiting a long time to see one of their national teams hoist a trophy at Wembley as I mentioned earlier having been there for 
not one, but two playoff finals this summer. But to see Nottingham uh, uh, beat Huddersfield, uh, even though the two penalties probably should have been called, but we'll go on from there. But having seen that celebration, I was like, oh my God, what would it be like to be there? Because the QPR game, right? Half the fans, the Nottingham, half the fans. I don't know. This is 95%. How many German fans were there? Not many. I'm sure there was a delegation of tickets to German fans, yeah. but in all honesty, minimum 85%, like minimum. Right. I mean, it, and so I can't imagine, I don't know what's louder, like the Metallica concert there, Live Aid, like, like what would have been louder at Wembley than that? Because every other soccer match or most other soccer matches that end there, half the people are, you know, right. Um, and so, um, so that's part of it. Also, you know, I care deeply. We used to have tickets, uh, season tickets to now Las Vegas aces, the San Antonio stars. Uh, and so I care, care deeply about women's sport in particular, especially, uh, to make sure that my, my boys grow up, uh, in, in an environment where they understand that, that, you know, that women play sport and are very, very good at it. So, so to see that kind of in-person crowd, I just read the other day that it, that Euro was the most watched soccer game this year. Full stop, no gender, like whatever. So to know that if you give an opportunity on TV and in arenas like this, women's soccer will succeed. That matters, you know, a lot to me. And and so she's doing her post-game interview and I, and I see a tweet. I'm like, is that a QPR flag? <laughs> And she's like got a QPR flag wrapped around her, like, like wearing her lioness's jersey. And then later, some other interviews, you know, at one point, you know, they she's doing a, you know, they ask her a question, and her fur before she even answers the question, she's like, "You ours? What? Holy, what is this?" And then you start doing some digging on her Instagram, and she's like, she's got QPR all over it. She was at the playoff final where Bobby's Moore scored. (laughs) It was in the same goal. In the same fashion, right? Like last minute kind of thing. So you just, it was so cool. And then, you know, the fallout of that, QPR host Middlesbrough in their first home match that week, I think, she brings out the ball uh, and, and you know, is, is kind of guest of the day uh, at Rangers. And so just like a stupid coincidence. All of this would have been cool anyway, and it would have been a goal anyway. But then when it was like, I'm sorry, you were a 14 year old when Bobby Zamora scored the goal and you were at Wembley. Forget about it. Like, this is like that forever. Like, okay. You know, it's gotta be on the list. (laughs) Oh, without doubt. There are honestly, actually I'm quite an emotional person, but there are actually only a handful of times in my life that I can truly remember being moved to tears by any kind of outcome of a soccer game. And more often than not, it's because we've lost rather than because we won. <laughs> I remember 2002, the England men's team losing, t- t- tears in my eyes. I remember being in Germany in 2006, mm. the Carvalho, Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney situation, tears in my eyes as a very happy Portuguese fan kind of taunted <laughs> me at 13 years old. I wasn't very happy. I, yeah, I never really thought that we'd see it's hard to think that you'll see an England team be successful and then previous summer obviously we're 1-0 up in the Euro 2020 final and everyone knows how that ends and I've never been more disappointed that I couldn't be in the UK Mm. than for this tournament in the summer to be completely honest because the feelings that friends of mine were having 
that acquaintances of mine were having, the people that I didn't even know liked football were having on my social media accounts. I would have loved, I'd given anything to have been able to experience that in person. Yeah. But watching it with my wife sat next to me, tearing up at the celebrations, at them bursting into Serena Vigman's press conference, oh. screaming, <laughs> football's coming home. <laughs> I, that, yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. And the fact that that translates transatlantically, yeah. not that I should be surprised by that whatsoever, but it just fills me with even more joy for that moment, the fact that it means as much as it does to yourself or anybody yeah. who's not English inherently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, and I, I just, yes, yes to all of that. And I think, again, just the way that you've described it, you know, that is a huge part of the reason the goal matters to me, because, you know, I care deeply about people that I care deeply about. And, and, you know, when they cry, often I cry, sometimes I taunt, but <laughs> most of the time I also cry, you know, and, and so just moved moved at the experience and again not for nothing but having been in that stadium just two months prior having talked extensively with uh, with Mansfield Town fans before that game uh, and knowing afterwards how crushed they were and so there was something I do think there was something about the proximity of me being in that place that led me to feel like, okay, that 85%, I care about their joy in a way that maybe I wouldn't have had I not been there just that, you know, with that, with in that a level of immediacy. So, yeah. Okay. Goal number five, we've made it to the end of Jacob's list. And this one again is a little piece of history and it's going to be interesting to see what I can actually find for this one in terms of video because it might only be available on a VHS, if we're honest. It's it's a special moment. This is the first NCAA goal that we've had selected on the podcast, which, for those of you who are not aware, again, is the American college system. And this is in the 2003 NCAA Division Three Men's Soccer National Championship game. And it is scored by Josh Smith, for Trinity University against Drew and Trinity win their national championship 2-1 in 2003. And this goal is one that I've heard talked about because having played for Trinity myself, it's a huge part of the program's history. The one national championship so far, knock on wood, it won't be the only one that Trinity have won. Josh Smith is someone I've had the pleasure of meeting as well, which is which is another kind of quirk to this, which is yeah. which is great. A great guy, great guy and an unbelievable player. He he showed up to do just jump in a little bit of our sessions in 2013, so ten years on from this. He's, I guess, he then is how old I am now. Yeah. And there's not a chance that I could <laughs> jump in and run the show the way he did with us. Yeah. So credit to Josh for being yeah. a way better player yeah, than I ever was. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing small. He was about 18 times the player that I ever was. But you alluded to it earlier. This was a goal that you heard on the radio. Yeah. And that's fascinating to me because I grew up listening to Premier League football yeah. on the radio yeah. because my parents didn't want to pay for Sky Sports. They waited until I was leaving for America to pay for Sky Sports, <laughs> and I will continue to bring that up until they apologize publicly. And listening to good moments and sad moments for my team on the radio on BBC radio five live is a huge part of my childhood as a football fan. And so hearing you talk about 
radio commentary of a Division Three national championship game. Yeah. It's so interesting because I didn't even know that there was radio commentary yeah. of Division Three games. So ex- explain to me. I mean, I think I understand why, but how does this one make your list? And yeah. talk me through the experience of Im- living this goal through the radio. Yeah. Set the scene, Madison, New Jersey, a cold and windy late November in 2003 afternoon on the campus of Drew University, might we add, 2,000 people, I guess probably 20 of them are are Trinity fans. I like, but I just, the wild to me to think that you're going to host a national championship game at home. You know, I think that is really fascinating and really important that they are playing on their home, on their home pitch. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, before there was now the, you know, the, the NCAA would have like the live video links. Um, and they may, maybe would have, but I don't know that I had the internet bandwidth or whatever, but you know, I was listening to as a live stream. And so, uh, they were good broadcasters. I mean, they're certainly not Hawkman or, you know, figured or any of the, you know, the, you, any, any of the legends, but, uh, but they were good. And, um, and you know, I, we talked earlier about, you know, being a, a Trinity graduate and, and my kind of first experiences with, uh, with truly kind of falling in love with the game. And, uh, you know, a lot of these, I worked in the athletics department. So, uh, you know, Paul's a good friend. His office was across, uh, you know, I respect the kind of teacher he is, uh, you know, both in terms of teaching the game, but also just kind of you know, broader kind of life lesson stuff. But so we're there, I'm listening and, uh, first half, it's just like we're like this is a game we're we're just gonna win this game. Josh's goal, Cullen Davies. What it sounded like was a chip from right to left. If I've got it right in my mind, uh, in the fiftieth minute, you you go up two nil, and you're just like, okay, now we're now we're really done. I don't know. Seconds later, however, like there was like a shot off the crossbar. Like, oh, he's slow. This is going to be. And I went back and looked at the stats just to make sure this was I was remembering this right. Drew had 13 shots in the second half. 13 shots. So this, you know, this goal comes in the 50th minute and it is just like, oh, my God, on on slot. Trinity had. 16 second half fouls like that to me speaks of desperation, right? Like I am just whatever I'm, I'm laying you down blow a whistle on me. Three second half saves. One hits the crossbar. You just like, I'm listening to it. And like, all you can do is just like hands over your eyes. And, and there's just nothing. I'm sitting in my, in my office. I'm like, Oh, we're going to lose this game because if it goes to extra period, in Trinity, their semifinal game had gone to extra period, uh, and and uh, Chris Quinn scored late to 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 secure that win. But you're like, we're not going to have the legs. There's just no way possible that we're going to be able to do two extra periods in in in, in, the, in with the one day off or whatever. So it was literally like I you know I don't know like what's the Gladiator movie three hundred or something. Just like <laughs> there's no way you should even continue to like take this battering, and somehow they did. Knowing again what it meant to a dear friend, knowing and working, some of these students were student employees of mine, knowing them, knowing the kinds of young men they were, and knowing what it meant to Trinity. And, you know, the first ever soccer championship in this, I think at any level, in the state of Texas, college soccer championship. So it just had all of this stuff. And I think it is, even though they were in different academic years, the women's 
our women's basketball team in March of that year won, uh, you know, a national championship. So to cap off a calendar year with two national championships was just ridiculous. And in this, the year that the women's national team, the basketball team won the national championship, Trinity finished fourth in the director's cup. We don't have time to talk about what that means. It's a really, really big deal. The year after we finished fourth. And so this net, the soccer championship is sandwiched in between probably the two greatest collective years for Trinity athletics. And, and again, like, it's just kind of cool. Like that, that's the connection point um, that a national championship is that, is that connection point. So uh, it, it just, you know, I don't think, I mean, I know, even though Trinity men's soccer has not won another national championship, I don't think Trinity men's soccer has looked back. And I think that was like this launching point to getting students like yourself, you know, international students, uh, students of exceedingly high caliber, the number of postgraduate scholarships, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and, and, and it's also, I think in so many ways, and a couple of the teams that you are on, I think just hard done by now, 19 years later, you think about how lucky you have to be, <laughs> you know, you, you know, you played on some unbelievably good teams yep. and one whistle here, one wide shot here, one, I think you guys lost in PKs one year. I think maybe I'm remembering that wrong, but like, just, you have to be really, really good and you have to be a little bit lucky. And that's what I feel like the lesson for me from that was it's not easy to win a national championship. Full stop. <laughs> Okay, we have made it through Jacob's list. Jacob, thank you for sharing your Desert Island goals with us. Just by way of a very, very quick recap, uh, we had Bobby Zamora, QPR against Derby. We had Shannon Gomez, SAFC against LA Galaxy 2. Obviously, Naki Wells, QPR against Cardiff City. Chloe Kelly, England against Germany. And Josh Smith, Trinity versus Drew. I alluded to this at the start, however. I always ask guests if they have any honorable mentions. And in this case, it's more than an honorable mention because this is a very important one that Jacob wanted to talk about and very fairly and very correctly so. My one rule with Desert Island goals is that they have to be goals to be on the list and they cannot take place in a penalty shootout because technically the game has ended in a tie and a penalty shootout is a standalone thing where goals scored in a penalty shootout do not count towards a player's career goal tally, shall we say. So, unfortunately, I had to tell Jacob that one of the goals he had selected, which is a penalty in a penalty shootout, was not valid for the list, hence Bobby Zamora's inclusion. And, therefore, this honourable mention really is more than honourable because, really, this would be on the list if the rules were slightly different. So, Jacob, your honourable mention... Yeah, I'll keep and I will keep this short. But July tenth, nineteen ninety nine, Brandy Chastain, the goal heard around the world. Uh, Wheaties box, you know, all of this stuff. She rips off, you know, I don't think women had done that before. Her rips off her top and this iconic slide with her jog bra and just like hands, you know, uh, like arms in the double clenched, like just exuberance, right? At the Rose Bowl, 
in uh, in Pasadena, ninety thousand one hundred and eighty five people at a women's soccer match in nineteen ninety nine. We should clarify, sorry, that Brandy Chastain's penalty wins, wins the women's the world, world cup. That's <laughs> just to clarify. If anybody if anybody wasn't aware, fair enough. It's yeah. the women's world cup final of nineteen ninety nine. The U.S. defeat China, and Brandy Chastain scores the fifth and final penalty for the U.S. to win the world cup. It's a very fair nomination. I apologize that my <laughs> rules were not built around it, but <laughs> please carry on about Brandy. Well, and, yeah. and, and so, and you know, again, I don't, I don't want to belabor the point, but it was a rematch of the 96 Atlanta gold medal game. Women's soccer had been, I don't know, marginally accepted by FIFA starting in the late eighties with the first women's world cup in 91. And, and I think I read a, I read a thing the other day, like that they didn't even allow it to be called the Women's World Cup. They called it like the M&M Cup or something like that. It, look it up. It's it's wild. So the level of disrespect that that FIFA had given to women's football. And even at that point in time, FIFA were like, no, we should host these games in like 10,000 seat stadiums. Donna Lopiano and the Women's Sports Foundation and the, and the folks who were in charge of, of the U.S. soccer um, uh, the 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 delegation that was running the World Cup said, "No, we're going to host it in big stadiums, and we're going to show you ninety more than ninety thousand people." And I don't know how many people watched on TV, but it just over a million. Over a million. Okay, and I will tell you, it's hard now. I think for anyone, especially given what we just talked about with Chloe Kelly's goal, it's hard for anyone. I think to understand if you weren't, you know, if you weren't like fully a cognizant human being at that point to appreciate how little respect women's sports had then. I mean, like, hey, it's not like it's not like it's, you know, prime time necessarily now. I mean, it was just whatever. And what the US soccer, the group that hosted the World Cup said no, and they proved to the world that people will watch women's football globally. And I contend that that goal changed soccer in the US irrespective of gender. And that for me is why it's worth talking about. And, you know, there, there's, it's, it was a nil, nil draw, like, you know, all of this stuff, world cup on the line. Did Brianna Scurry jump to, you know, to make the one save against the China? Like eh, she probably like came off early and the referee should have let that be a retake, whatever. Like it was just, it was, it was a moment that again, if, I was what 27 years old or something like 26 years old at that point in time and had just soccer itself, but, but women's sport in general was just so undervalued and underappreciated. And like at that moment for, for, in my opinion, the whole world changed, especially in, you know, it's soccer in the U S. And so I think that's what, for me, like that goal has, you know, is maybe the most significant goal in American soccer history, regardless of gender. Other people, I'm sure, will argue with me about that, but I just like I just feel like that 1999 was, and people can't see what I'm doing with my arm right now, but it was like a pivot point in terms of what the sport meant in in the U.S. Something I've always admired about the U.S. is that the attitude towards sports of any sport is if we're good at it, we'll keep spending money on it to remain good at it. And if we're not good at it, we're going to spend money on it until we're good at it. <laughs> and I respect the, you know, tough headed commitment, strong headed commitment to winning um, that America has. And 
what the US women's national team has gone on to accomplish mm. in and you, we're talking generation after generation because mm-hmm. 1999 to 2022 is a long span and there have been multiple World Cup wins yeah. and multiple gold medal wins t- to the point at which and I think this is a really key thing to highlight in less than a month England are playing the USA at a sold out Wembley in a friendly which will be internationally televised and a big deal mm. and potentially a preview of a late stage women's world cup game yeah. next year yeah. based on the fact that the US knocked England out in the semi-finals yeah. in 2019 yeah. next year there's a chance maybe for some tea sipping revenge <laughs> uh, from last time but it's incredible to see that level of interest and yeah. intrigue and it's a credit just as much as it is to the England women's team and how they've grown, but it's a credit to the US women's national team starting from Brandy Chastain that they are this internationally beloved phenomenon, really. And again, I think it's worth mentioning on top of all of the off-field crap that they've had to do to fight their own federation to receive now some back pay and, and, you know, but goodness gracious, like, the fact that the U S men's team gets paid equal, let alone more than the women's national team is like completely shocking to me. And so this, this team and Michelle Akers, I think was captain or she had been, but you know, in the previous, you know, one of the previous rounds, they have had to fight for everything off the pitch as well, which to me makes their on pitch performance even more impressive because you would have every reason to like, uh, you know, have an excuse to say, well, we're distracted by a lawsuit or we're distracted by the fact that we're wearing men's clothing because they can't even buy women's uniforms or, you know, whatever. So uh, that to me, I think makes it even more important. I, I will say, and this is, <laughs> this is a little bit of a, of a backtrack, but when you were describing the U.S., uh, you know, sports scene, like spending money on, you know, whatever, I was like, I think you just described the championship because <laughs> <laughs> like, we're just going to keep spending money until until we get relegated or until we get a 21 point, you know, whatever, you know, it's like, QPR of 44 million pounds is like whatever. We're just going to keep spending good money after bad, but we're going to eventually get promoted again. <laughs> That's probably the key place to end this on is give me a prediction for QPR. Are we are we headed for a playoff and a promotion run this year? If they finish in the top 10, I will be unbelievably happy this year. I think it is it is a rebuilding year, but gosh, these last two games, uh the Watford win uh and the whole you know just crushing um are signs that it could be let me just say this. I think it's going to be a fun season and I'm strapped in for the ride. Well, I think there's no better way to end than on Jacob having already been corrupted into being a pessimistic British soccer fan. That's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. I know how busy you are and it means a lot. And we could have spoken for four hours about a thousand different things as we always can do across sports. Yeah. But really, really thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's truly an honor and truly a pleasure. And, uh, you know, to, to the hopefully more than one listener, uh, uh, send me a tweet and argue with the goals that I picked. I'm sure someone out there will. I know Davis will for yeah. sure. I've already, I've already let him know that you've been calling him out. Anyway, um, as always, thanks for taking the time to listen to us. We are spreading by word of mouth. So let your loved ones know if you think they might be interested. If you are interested 
in being a guest, please get in touch. I am open and all ears to anybody who thinks they might want to do their Desert Island goals. So thank you for taking the time. Enjoy. Have a great weekend. Cheers. Thank you.